Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we're taking a look at the twin issues of overdiagnosis and overtreatment in musculoskeletal rehabilitation. Joining me is Professor Chad Cook from Duke University, where he's the Program Director of the Doctor of Physical Therapy. Chad is a clinician, a researcher, and a physical therapy advocate with a distinguished history of excellence in clinical care. His passions include refining and improving clinical assessments in musculoskeletal practice and validating tools that physical therapists use in their day-to-day practice. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Chad. Thanks, Clara. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Now, folks will know your landmark work on diagnosis and looking at diagnostic test accuracy of some of our really common clinical assessments. And recently, you've been working on assessing how accurate self-assessments are by patients. So like in a telehealth setting, and it's really relevant given the COVID-19 pandemic, are we in danger of being at a stage where there's too much measurement, too much diagnosis and too much treatment in musculoskeletal practice? Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially too much diagnosis or overdiagnosis or creating a diagnosis when one doesn't really exist. When I think of musculoskeletal diagnoses, I, I think they fall into four different categories. There's red flags, and these are typically biomedical. Uh, these are scary things that we need to identify. These are musts. There are legitimate biomedical problems, maybe a, a full thickness rotator cuff tear or a blatant lumbar radiculopathy with foot drop and hard neuroscience. And then there are somatization findings, essentially where these would be your nonspecific low back pain, rotator cuff-related disorders, all of these things that are homogenous, they all blend together. If we then diagrammed them, they'd overlap a ton. And then there are the patients who I think have a recalcitrant chronic pain problem that no longer has a peripheral trigger. And I think that's a small percentage of the population, but they're probably the most difficult to treat. So with, if you have those four different categories, I think diagnosis fits nicely in red flags and not that many tests are very good for that, unfortunately. I think the traditional biomedical diagnoses, full thickness, rotator cuff tear, ACL tear, we have some pretty good tests for that. I think an appropriate diagnosis is good there. I think we run into danger on the last two, somatization and the recalcitrant chronic pain problem. We're trying to label those and potentially overtreat those and potentially give them too much medicine. So then what do you mean when you say or when you write too much medicine? It's a term we used in a, a recent viewpoint in which Jeremy Liss was the lead author, Peter Sullivan was on it, Tammy Hoffman. If you look in the literature, too much medicine is an umbrella term for a lot of different things. So it it means medicalization, which is making something out of nothing. In normal, everyday things that happen to a person, sadness, aches and pains, stiffness, we medicalize it, call it something, create a diagnosis, create a whole treatment genre for that, and then we, we overtreat it. And then there's overdiagnosis. Overdiagnosis actually is when there is something there, but if you just leave it alone, it tends to have a positive prognosis. And if you don't overtreat it, if you don't make a mountain out of a molehill, then that particular condition actually gets better. They commonly overlap medicalization and 
over-diagnosis, but they actually mean two different things. Over-medicalization is a misnomer. You tend to see that term used in sociology literature. And essentially what they're claiming is, is there's a, there's a give and take with medicalization. By medicalizing conditions, there has been some good that's come out of that. Um, recognition that mental health disorders are legitimate and that they actually need actual formal care. But there has also been bad that's come out of that and that we now throw medicine at everything and everything is a disorder like a gambling disorder and a number of other things that aren't really legitimate disorders. And what would be a couple of examples that you could share from PT practice or from musculoskeletal rehabilitation practice, some examples of too much medicine or overdiagnosis? I'm glad you're asking that specific to especially physical therapist practice because it, it tends to be the medical physicians and you know hardcore prescribers that get labeled with this. But I think PTs, chiropractors, osteopaths are guilty of this as well. And I think a couple of really good examples are any postural type of comments that we make about patients. And when we, when we create these like postural screenings, we create all these pathologies based on a patient or, or a pre-pathology, because you have this posture, you're likely to get a compression fracture or you're likely to get a disc problem or, or whatever. And we're, we're very guilty of that as a profession, I think. And that's partly because I think that's in our DNA. We were taught that. I remember spending a lot of time in front of a plumb line, and I'm not sure those things are are very useful. I think the way that we treat the pelvis has historically also been a very uh, medicalized problem where we're making up upslips and downslips and a lot of theoretical frameworks that are there to scare a patient into thinking they may have something more serious than what it is, when in reality, it's probably nonspecific low back pain. So I think those are two really good examples in the in the physical therapy world. And so then how do we draw the line between what's over-diagnosis or over-treatment and what's appropriate? So I think uh, there are a couple of ways. I think the, the first way is, is stop using uh, made-up terminology that maybe other professions don't even know what it is or, or other people haven't, wouldn't adopt that or, or maybe they're built off a philosophy that created information to support its own philosophy. So stop using that. Stop telling patients that they have things that aren't really legitimate. Stop contributing to that medicalization. Chad, can you share a specific example or a couple of specific examples of the sorts of terms that you're talking about here? I think the low-hanging fruit, probably a slip disc uh, or a uh, subluxation. That's a term we don't use a lot, but I think the chiropractic profession does. Getting back to the pelvis, I think any of the upslip, downslip, inflare, outflare, sacral torsion, left on left, left on right, right on right, right on left, all of that nonsense that we essentially had to learn, which probably are made up ideas to build upon a philosophy and probably don't actually exist. The other thing that I think, you know, getting back to your original question, Claire, on what we can do as physical therapists to combat this is have a strong understanding of prognosis. You know, I I like to, when I talk to clinicians, I typically ask, you know, what's the prognosis of this particular condition? And in many cases, they don't know. And you probably are aware of the literature that in medical school, 95% of the effort goes into diagnosis and less than 5% goes into prognosis. And I would argue that prognosis is of equal importance because if you know that something has a natural history that's positive, 
And that probably the best thing that you can do is just stay out of the way and not make something more than what it is, then it's going to get better on its own. So understanding prognosis would be the other tip that I, that I would definitely give. There's a whole lot of context around our healthcare system and the way that healthcare is delivered that can make this way of approaching healthcare tricky, not least that patients are often coming to us wanting us to fix them. So how do we start to unravel and untangle and get out of some of the things that might drive overtreatment, overdiagnosis? So that's the most complex question of the day, <laughs> because there are so many drivers to overtreatment. And, you know, it's interesting. I think certainly the clinician is guilty and is one of those on a spoke of reasons why there's overtreatment, but the consumer is another. And the patients have driven their own overtreatment. Big pharmacy is another. The increased technology is another. The unwillingness of society now in being patient with a condition and wanting instant fixes and, and complete intolerance to pain, which is, you know, no one said there should be no pain, but we're, we're in a society that feels that all pain is abnormal. All of these things are driving overtreatment. And the clinician is in a push-pull, I think, and that they're, they're trying to give to the patient. But in reality, what's happening is, is they're, they're throwing some gas on the fire in the process. But I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that they're only one piece of a larger problem, which is more of a societal problem. So then what would be your three top tips for clinicians who are trying to recognize overdiagnosis and overtreatment in their practice? Yeah, the first thing I would do is, is make sure that they, they're not part of the problem. One of the best ways of doing that is being very upfront with the patient, being honest with them to let them know if, A, I, I can help you in the best way I can do, what I can do is this. And, and sometimes that is very little. Uh, the best thing I can do is get out of your way and allow the natural healing process to occur. Give us some time. It's going to be fine. Or you have a condition that's better managed by someone else. And, and I know we're physical therapists and we believe that everybody benefits from PT, but in some cases, patients may be better off with another type of care. The other is is bone up on prognosis and learn more about that. I, I just think we really have a poor knowledge with respect to that. There is good literature on this, and we know prognostic factors, and this should be at the tip of our tongue. This should be part of our arsenal when we talk to patients so that they know they know how long it takes to treat a tendinopathy, and it's not abnormal that it's taking a while because that's a tendinopathy. And they know that it Low back pain is recurrent in many cases, and that's pretty normal. So boning up on that. The third piece is don't try to make up new things and don't jump on that swinging pendulum and try the next greatest thing. It was dry needling. It was manual therapy. Now it's psychologically informed practice. And, I, and I'm, one of my biggest concerns is that we medicalize patients by making their concerns, their fears, their uh, anxiety associated with their back pain, shoulder pain, knee pain, that we pathologize that and turn that into the next major problem. Nobody's talking about that because that's the big, that's the train that we're on right now, but I have some big concerns about that. 
So we've talked very specifically about what we as individual clinicians can do. What are some of the bigger picture things that you see need to change in the way that, say, healthcare is funded or the way that healthcare is delivered that perhaps rehabilitation clinicians can be part of driving change? Well, I think we need to be on the front side of care versus on the back side and receiving injured individuals. And a focus on health would obviously be the right approach. It's probably extremely difficult to implement. Otherwise, everybody would have done it already. And some of the bigger challenges when it comes to focusing on health is understanding what actually influences health. I don't think we have a strong understanding of that. There is enough literature now to support the fact that there are behavioral characteristics, where a person lives, works, plays, learns, probably influences their overall health. Genetics a little bit, biomarkers contribute as well. I, I think understanding all of these things and being on the front side of that is the direction we need to go. Now, is it going to work in a traditional fee-for-service based environment? No, I don't think it will. I am a fairly conservative individual, but I have expressed before that I think a more of a universal-based healthcare model that really flips the system is probably what's needed. And that I think the current health systems that work the best have done it that way, but they've also had a consumer population that was willing to play along as well, that they're not a passive consumer population, that they're contributing to their own health and doing the things they need to do to get better. I think you need both of those things to have the harmony of of a really strong health system. That segues nicely into a question about self-management. I'm hearing a lot more about self-management. So can you help us understand how self-management fits into this picture, if in fact it does? You know, it's interesting. The information I've read on self-management is very mixed. And perhaps it's because by the time we, we get that patient, they are too far gone for what we provide them to make a market difference. And I've ruminated on this a lot. I, I think the other piece is, is the other covariates that really influence the health of that individual. We probably aren't making a difference in those with the self-management programs that we provide that patient. Now, on the very front side of an injury or an illness, I think self-management has, plays a, a major role. Appropriate diet, no smoking, exercise, increased activity, decreased stress, all of these elements that lead to better health. But we don't get those patients. In my country, we never see those patients. We see those that have broken in the system. And by the time they get to us, they have three, four things wrong with them. And then in many cases, the self-management pieces are, are going to be a blip on the, on the total thing that that patient needs. Does this all mean that we should be going back and doing more study in psychology and trying to get better at talking with patients? Is that going to be the key to fixing all of this problem? That's a necessity because that's part of the engagement process. And I think the best clinicians are able to engage their patients and get the buy-in and there's a mutual agreement. That's all part of the alliance. And the best clinicians I've seen have actually done very, very well with that. Now, whether that's a psychological background or a learned trait, I'm not sure. However, it doesn't mean that every single person needs psychologically informed practice and cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive functional therapy or 
are all those elements. These, those are appropriate for the right patient, but that's not every patient. With respect to your original question, should we go back and, and learn that? That should be part of our education, no question. I always answer that question the same way because I've, I've expressed concerns about this massive shift toward uh, mental health therapy when I don't think everybody needs it. But I do think it needs to be part of our educational process. And it's certainly what we've done at Duke is we've tried to embed that into our curriculum so that every student walks away with those skills. You've got a ton of experience in musculoskeletal research, in teaching, and in clinical practice. What do you see as the bright spots in musculoskeletal research practice and teaching right now? Oh, wow. Um, I, I think there are a lot, uh, especially with research. I think as a population, musculoskeletal researchers are pretty cutthroat on making sure that we do good research. I think there's a lot of pressure on our colleagues for believability and for one-upping so that we consistently try to get better research as we go along. I think there, you know, I know, I know the, the idea of 17 years to clinical practice, but I think things are moving a little quicker. I've noticed that the clinicians are as interested in doing the right thing and adopting the right research into clinical practice. And I think we're seeing a much faster evolution on that end of it. Um, as far as teaching, you know, my theory is I think they're probably the third fastest I think that we're still very anchored to traditional ways of teaching. I think the the recent COVID-19 challenges have really altered some of the ways that we teach in a good way so that we consolidate the information that we give, we refine what it is, and we actually identify what is best. And, and I think we're moving away a little bit from this assumption that we have to have our hands on somebody to teach them. I think there are more ways of learning than what we traditionally thought. Chad, let's finish by talking a little bit about the viewpoints feature in JOSPT. We're so fortunate to benefit from your expertise as editor of that special feature. What are you looking for in a viewpoint? What are the sorts of things that are catching your eye when people are thinking about submitting a viewpoint? Yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky to be involved uh, since day one when the viewpoints were just, were just initiated and get to work with Jeremy List, too, who's a really creative mind and always is kind of on the, on the cutting edge of, of things. Viewpoints are really about, they're a, an evidence-based white paper. And the idea behind it is you are to identify a gap or something amiss in clinical practice or research or medicine right now. And then you write a small 1500 word paper that tells the story behind that with supporting documentation. So what we're looking for is a person to be edgy, is a person to be willing to take a step into uncomfortable, and a person who's willing to call something for what it is. Uh, some of my favorite viewpoints, for example, I mean, Too Much Medicine was one that was a nice one. Mike Raymond's paper on FAI, where he said, what's next? There's no checks and balances here. We, it's a circular discussion that we're having these surgeries and there aren't any studies that are supporting this. What's next? It's grown 8,000%. Those are the sort of things that we're looking for. I know that JOSPT is very, has been very good about allowing these to be published. It's very different, I think, than a, a traditional research paper. I actually think they're way more exciting and much more interesting. 
I really enjoy reading them too. So to remind our audience, it's 1,500 words, 10 references, something edgy, something that's going to grab the attention of the reader. Chad, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. Thanks so much for making the time to join us on JOSPT Insights. Thank you, Claire. It's, it's really been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.